Hey there, and <laughs> welcome to Radio Free Bay Ridge. I'm Dan, and I'm joined in our teleconferencing studio with our co-host, Eric. Eric, how's it going, man? Co-host and senior education correspondent, Dan, I'm ready and reporting back again. Back again after about a year. I think your last episode was in September of 2019. Oh, wow. That was a year ago, huh? <laughs> How we can use data to better demand stuff from public schools. Man, remember when we had much easier problems? Weirdly enough, this is kind of a sequel to that episode where we're talking about data, but the data isn't just education outcomes. Seems like what people are worrying about is, you know, is my kid going to die? Or is my kid going to kill grandma? There's a lot of things going on here. And uh, spoiler alert for the listeners, I'm going to just forecast this a little bit. None of the data is good right now. It's just not good. So uh, we're going to talk about how complicated all that is. Happy Christmas, everyone. We're going to be a little bit of a downer. <laughs> um, well, that's not true. I'm nothing if not a disgusting optimist, as our <laughs> other co-host Rachel Brody would say. Let's try to drive through some of the negatives so we can get to the positive and the actionable right. items. So, Eric, I want to start off with something everyone already knows. We are in the middle of a very frustrating time, end of fall semester, where it seems like we're flying by the seat of our pants. 2020, a week can feel like a year. Let's get some mm -hmm. context on how we got here. Oh, wow. How did I even start? New York officially shut down in the early 20s of March. The time frame changes depending on who you ask, because we think about when we started taking it seriously in quarantining. For some of us, that was a little later than others. But we knew that this was going to start cascading into citywide events. New York pause, end of March, early April, yeah. right? The priorities back then, at least as far as education was concerned, were, we don't know what this is, shut it down. This mm -hmm. is like that scene in the West Wing where Barlett's like, things are bad, shut it down. And then it gets a dong, 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 <laughs> you get like musical interlude and it's all intense. Turn it off and turn it back on later. And it's a hard thing now because we've lived in this mental state of following medical science through their discovery of a disease in a way that has never been public at this level before. So we forget that in March and April, and as the school year was ending, everybody was just like, they were wiping down their groceries. Masks weren't even part of the discussion yet. The amount to which we didn't know back in the day of April of this year <laughs> is astronomical. And we really need to remember that that's where our headspace was. And it's really amazing to me still that people in power and people who had a voice weren't saying, obviously, we will not get through this summer with enough guidance and enough time to adequately protect students in the way that we need to. Let's just call it now. No fall. We'll do it remote and figure it out then. That's what a bunch of other cities did. Yes, absolutely. A bunch of other cities did that. Like Chicago, L.A., and also, they weren't seeing spikes the way we were back then. No, we had firsthand knowledge as New Yorkers of what this thing could do. And we just couldn't get that in our head, that we would not have a fall. That was our first misstep is we didn't say we don't know what this is. So let's prepare for the fact that we will continue to not know. Yes. And even if midsummer, we knew what we knew now in November. We're recording this in November. By the way, it's like the second day that schools have closed. We still wouldn't have had time to do what we needed to do by the start of the semester. All of this stuff takes ramp up. It takes money and government attention. 
And we weren't going to have that in time. We just weren't. Who were the people who needed to call that shop? Well, if I knew this answer, Dan, I would be the chancellor of New York City schools <laughs> and everything would be great. You heard it here first. Eric is running for school chancellor. Oh, no. Uh-uh. <laughs> nope. No. I know a crown gets paid. That's not enough. It is unclear to everyone, including, I do think, the governor and the mayor himself, who actually calls that shot. What we see is the governor and the mayor fighting about who actually can close the schools. We see it all the time. Even if there was one right person to make a decision and they made that decision, it wouldn't have mattered if everyone else around them said no. Also, let's say the right person made the call. So many people have to do so much work from April to September that it still could have failed. Let's fast forward a little bit. The economic discussion and the school discussion intertwines heavily to the point where they did indoor dining for the purposes of determining statistical causation at the same time as schools reopening. So when those numbers, and we now know, inevitably ticked up, it was really hard to separate out whether it was schools or businesses. So it's hard to point that finger, although we do have some statistical data and maybe can touch on this as well, that the schools are doing better than the city average. So do you think it is the schools that are causing that uptick, that opening them was inherently dangerous? Oh, gosh. I'm going to say everyone's least favorite answer when a statistician or a policy person is talking, which is that it was never just one thing. We do have a little bit of numbers now that the age groups of 0 to 19 are starting to tick up more mm. and more. And it's not, you're right, following the city uptick but it is moving substantially. I want to dispel immediately before I get too into this conversation, the idea that anybody has the right answer on this right now. The first two things we're going to put in the show notes, there's a study from Duke that basically was like, kids aren't the spreaders and everything's fine. If you just run your schools right, you're going to be okay. And then there's a study from Princeton came out in the same exact month that said, children are the key to spread and they are the drivers of super spreader events. These are two really big research powerhouses that are saying opposite things. And the reality is we don't have the information to make that call yet. It's like the election just happened and people are trying to make something out of the exit polls. The exit polls are really wrong this year. So anybody who said anything about the election in the first two weeks, like on Twitter, they were just wrong. And that's the thing, like with education in particular, but also public health, which is the intersection that we're sitting in now. Yeah. I know it's frustrating, but you can't say anything about anything in education without years of data. I mean, years. That's what we were talking about in that last episode. Yeah. The idea that schools being open was going to either be the thing that sunk us or be the thing that was okay. It was never going to be that black and white. But the reality is, if there was going to be childhood transmission, it was going to happen in schools. The asymptomatic bits of COVID are making it particularly susceptible here. We're going to go into the fact that as of right now, schools aren't testing at the level that they said they were going to do it. They just aren't. They said there were going to be tests in every school. They said there were going to be nurses in every school to make sure that everyone is testing and they're going to keep their eyes on students and it's going to be locked down. Maybe 20% of that is happening and I'm being really generous. You see teachers, you talk to teachers. Some of them still haven't been contacted for COVID tests. That's absurd. We're two months into the school year. The idea that we even know if schools are a vector, we might never know just by the raw fact that we aren't testing them enough to know. Yeah. If you really want to start tracing things back, at the end of the day, New York City was going to need a lot of money. 
that it didn't have in order to either make schools open and able to test and fully staffed and protective of teachers and protective of students and the parents that those students go home to every day. Or it was going to need a lot of money that it didn't have to expand remote learning, to expand broadband internet access, to expand Wi-Fi hotspots, to expand internet device allocation, a lot of other things that also just would have been a lot of money. And we had no federal government whatsoever for the first six months of this pandemic. And to say that we have it now is also being a little bit too generous. We're still waiting on money as of recording for the federal government for the first wave. The reason that economy and education got so intertwined, particularly now, is because I think, and I can't say I was in any of these rooms, obviously, because I'm just me, there had to have been this knowledge to a certain degree that once they saw federal aid wasn't coming, the New York City economy was entirely dependent on continuing to work so that schools could still get any money at all, right? Mm -hmm. We decided early on, I say we here in air quotes that listeners can't see, that we weren't going to take money from anywhere else to help schools. That's what I'll say. And so that means New York City has to continue to take in money from people who are working in order to fund their schools through taxes because they weren't getting it from the federal government. And if the New York City economy collapses, then there's no money anyway. So why does it matter? So the reason that these things got tied up is because there's not going to be help. So we need to at least get as much taxes as we've been getting to at least stay stable. And this is what you've been saying for years and years and years about how our education system is broken. This is just the thing that tapped it lightly and it shattered. And it is still needs to be said that we are systematically defunding public education every single year. Raw dollars, we're giving them more money. But in terms of what they need to operate and to improve, we're giving them less money every single year. And that has an effect. And we see that effect happening now. So that's how these things get tied together. When you start thinking about why we decided or how we decided this, it remains unclear to me, Dan, how Democratic talking points in particular, in April, at the national level and at the local level, Democrats were coming out and we were saying, hey, we have to give people money in order to stop this thing. We have to give them money to stay home. We have to give them money because they're unemployed. We have to give them money to find new jobs. We have to give them money for things that they need so that they don't go outside and continue to spread a virus. We're talking about direct aid. Direct aid. And the Republican talking point was we need to get everything open as safely as we can manage so that the economy can continue even though we're going to be sick for the better part of a year. Or at that point, we were thinking closer to two years. Yeah. So those two kind of competing arguments, the Democratic and Republican argument, at some point, the Democrats just stopped asking for it. They just receded into this space where, okay, we can ask for more unemployment benefits, but we should probably still open up schools. We can ask for another stimulus check, but let's definitely open up schools. We have to do open up schools. I don't want to give too little credit here. The Democrats have held the line on another stimulus check. There's been a through line of unemployment insurance. The education argument just dropped off the map mm -hmm. and nobody argued for anything else. And this happens, by the way, with education policy more generally all the Welcome time. to your world, Eric, is what you want Welcome to, say. to my world, listeners. This happens all the time because, and I'm saying this with all of the love in the world as now a registered Democrat, that Democrats regularly drop education issues from platforms 
from talking points, mm-hmm. and we can't even get them to fund schools. And that's not even a policy. Funding schools is an obligation, and we have to fight for it like it's a policy initiative. Yeah. I have some ideas about why that is about education. We don't have time to get into it today. But the reason we so quickly ended up where we were is because the argument for a fully remote school year was just never made. Yeah. It was considered, it was talked about a little bit, and then nobody fought for it. And that's why we didn't get it. We needed somebody in April saying, we need to do remote schools. We need to start now, even though we haven't even graduated our seniors yet, because it's going to be hard. And nobody had wanted to do that. No one's going to see this curveball coming. Let's talk about the people who did get it done. Parochial schools and charters right now, without being part of that public policy world, they did a lot of the things that we should be seeing right now in our public schools. What did they do right? Yeah, so let's take a case study. This doesn't sit citywide, but Success Academy Charters, they're the biggest charter in the city by a few metrics. They're fairly well known for a number of good and very bad reasons. And as somebody who is particularly critical of charters myself, what Success Academy did was they shut it down immediately. And even now, as of, I think, a couple of days ago, the head of Success Academy Charters is like, we're still not going to open. We're keeping them shut because it's working for us and our kids aren't getting sick and their parents aren't getting sick. And so we can say that they did the right thing. It does ignore the fact that Success Academy Charters, again, as a case study, they aren't even 5% of the logistical difficulty that the city would have yes. in doing the same exact thing. They don't have some of the structural inequities that the public school system were required to take on. So Eric, let's talk about some of the things that have always been broken about our public schools. Because we had the CDC come out rather early on and say, we need to keep schools open because of these things that students require. The CDC recommendations, I'm glad you brought it up, Dan, because I've gone through them in extensive detail. A number of those bullet points were just absolutely abhorrent to me to read as a citizen. (laughs) I don't know how else to say it. Their lead issue was the fact that COVID mortality rate in children was lower than adults. So it's okay to reopen. If everyone remembers, that was Betsy DeVos's main thrust. Kids are dying less. Let's open them. And she actually gave a number. I forget if it was in congressional testimony or in an interview. But she gave like a percentage number of what would be like an acceptable number. Of children dying. Of children dying. And I was like, that's about 40 some thousand students nationwide. Okay, who wants to have their kid dead? Let's raise hands maybe. So argument number one for open in schools this cycle was there are acceptable numbers of dead children, which is abhorrent. It's abhorrent. So let's move on to bullet point number two. So their next bit, and I'm going to try to fast forward through these a little bit, was that Social and emotional health is going to be harmed. Congratulations. We're all experiencing the same exact pandemic and all of our emotional and social health is harmed. And our schools weren't providing the appropriate amount of mental health resources anyway before this pandemic. We were supposed to have a therapist in every school. We were talking about it last year. Not anymore. Other things that were coming in, it keeps children away from domestic violence issues. Great point. We could probably do something different about domestic violence than open schools, but that's just me. Food insecure students rely on uh, schools for meals. I got to tell you, schools being open during the summer and handing out meals was wildly successful. They're so successful, they expanded it, and they gave it to more than just students. School buildings 
were immensely helpful in getting people fed this summer. And we brushed that success under the rug and never talked about it again. Especially as we are getting into colder months right now. We just had Thanksgiving. We're coming up on Christmas. The fact that we abandoned schools as a distribution point is insane. I am angry about a lot of things. My top three, Dan, is the fact that something was working so well, not just for students, not just for children, but for the public at large. And we ignored the fact that it was a success. We should have been slamming our fists on the table saying, we found a way to distribute food better in New York City in a pandemic. And we did it safely. And we did it in places where there are food deserts already that we haven't addressed. And you're going to tell me that we're just not going to scream about it? I can't. I can't. We are so ready to grasp defeat from the jaws of victory. It destroys me. So our final bit, the CDC final recommendation as to why we should open schools, and the one that became the public face of this, is because it would lead to, say it with me, everybody, (laughs) learning loss. Learning loss. That mystery, nebulous idea of learning loss. And Dan, (laughs) dear listener, I'm here to tell you that in education research, we know a lot of things and we know nothing. (laughs) And that's the nature of this sort of thing. Learning loss, to the extent that it exists, is such a complicated structure that the idea that we could be using it for such a simple saying that drives forward our one singular public health decision I, don't, I almost don't know where to begin, except I do know where to begin, Dan. The concept of learning loss is more or less what it says on the tin. The idea is students will not learn as much in remote learning or by not going to school at all than they would if they were in school. I, Eric, the uh, what grade are people learning fractions? The sixth grade boy am not going to learn fractions this year. So when I go into seventh grade next year, and the pandemic is over, my future will be affected, right? My future will be negatively affected. Yeah. So we have to open schools or there will be this huge knock-on effect. It's a powerful image because it assumes a future in which 20 years from now, we're going to experience some kind of economic dip and we'll all be able to say, ah, that's the learning loss from COVID. It happened 20 years later. It's a powerful idea. Here's the origins of it, Dan. We started talking about learning loss because we were talking about the amount to which black and brown students and particularly lower socioeconomic status drop off in their learning over the summer and then pick it back up when school starts. That's where learning loss comes from. That doesn't sound like it's the same thing at all. It's not the same thing at all. And one, I would ask our listeners to think about why learning loss became important when it started happening to rich white kids as opposed to happening to lower socioeconomic kids every year for I kid you not, the past 50 years, measurable the last 50 years. The original research on this started in the 70s, folks. So we've known about it. It became important this year. Think about why. It's because it's happening to the rich white students. Two, it is not in question whether students with lower socioeconomic status are disadvantaged. Mm -hmm. It is starting to become into question whether summer is the exacerbator of that. The main chunk of data on learning loss is something called the beginning school study. It was done in Baltimore, lasted from 82 to 2002 or 2007, I forget which. All of this data rests on our assessment being good, um, which is, again, still very debatable. Go back to our old episode. We'll talk about assessments. (laughs) Go back to our old episodes. We talk all about it. 
But there's studies coming out now that's like, hey, you know, the fact that summer happens isn't maybe the thing that's leading to lower learning outcomes in these students. The idea that people aren't in school and that's hurting them is coming into question. And there is not consensus about it. Granted, there's a lot of years on the other end, but there's a lot of new data on that one. So So we shouldn't freak out too much that a kid can't experience the traditional learning environment that we've come to expect for like 50 to 60 to 70 years. That's the button on the entire conversation. At the end of the day, are you worried about something that may not really be doing what you think it is? And are you ready for your kid to die for it? Do you want to increase the death toll for something that might not exist and for something that by and large can just be made up? Yeah. We can decide collectively as a country to be okay with the fact that we lost a bit of school time. That's something that we could do. It happened over 100 years ago, but we've been through something like this before in our education system, and that's the 1918 influenza. We did a little bit of New York Times digging. (laughs) It was fun. It was pretty fun. We were looking at the New York Times specifically around October, November, like kind of the same time frame that we're in now, and basically looked at how the schools responded and the city responded, as a matter of fact, to the outbreak of the 1918 flu. And it was a really interesting convergence. So just to summarize it up for the listeners really quick, New York City was really into this, like a fad isn't the right word, but there was a couple of years there where they were just like really into expanding the public health infrastructure of New York City, Mm -hmm. not just like sewers. They were expanding the amount to which agencies had their fingers in different pies. They were talking about response plans. They were talking about hiring on doctors, nurses into places where you wouldn't expect doctors and nurses to be, including schools. They had a special committee set up specifically for talking between the school system and the healthcare system. And then influenza hit. And basically, they went all out for it. To kind of make a long story short, they put nurses in every school. They empowered teachers to kind of notice symptoms or to talk to their students about their families to see if a family member was about to get sick Hmm. and so that they could kind of get ahead of the spread a little bit. No TV, not easy to get mass communications out. Not everyone could afford a newspaper or read a newspaper. So like kept the schools open. But the reason it was done also is as a communication pathway to provide a public health service. I think they gave kids leaflets and information that they could bring back to their parents as a way of combating the virus. The schools were a part of how they fought the virus and they were treated as such. 900,000 pamphlets went out through the New York City public school system in 1918. 900,000. There weren't 900,000 students. (laughs) I read those articles as they didn't just give them the pamphlets. Like you said, they told the children about this information so that they could go tell it verbally to their parents. The other thing is, is that a lot of those people who were in a lower socioeconomic status were living in tenement housing, which had multiple people crowded into the same area, poor sanitation, poor air circulation. A lot of our school buildings that we look out today in Bay Ridge were built around the time of the 1918 influenza pandemic. Those school buildings were brand new. They had all of the new technology to keep kids safe. I remember as we were ramping up to opening schools, (laughs) they were talking about how many windows actually still opened in these buildings. Whereas in 1918, when we kept them open, they were the best choice. Keeping kids in those environments were better than keeping them in tenement buildings where it was spreading. It was almost evacuating kids for a big part of the day. 
out of these yeah. conditions. That actually happened. We found out from our research. The head of the influenza response unit in New York City, Dr. Copeland, his son got sick because he wasn't in school. He directly made the connection <sighs> of my son was out on the streets of New York doing kid things and he got sick when he should have been in school. And despite all of those extremely effective and better health measures than we had this time around, over 1,000 teachers still got sick. Yeah. The best case scenario that New York put together and over 1,000 teachers still got sick with the flu. Yeah. And let's not say just the flu. Early on in the summer, you heard people talk about open air schools. I heard a lot of people say, oh, well, how come we can't just have open air schools? Kind of like how we had outdoor dining. We did that in 1918. We had outdoor schools and you can see these kids bundled up. A lot of kids died from pneumonia because guess what? It's mm -hmm. cold in the winter. We kept them out in like sub-zero temperatures and they died. So we're at the nadir of this conversation. <laughs> Let's get to the positive because we want to wrap up mm -hmm. our last 10, 15 minutes really talking about what we can do better and what we can demand because we're going to see this again. Coronavirus is not the only time that something like this is going to happen. And I totally understand parents who are saying, I do want these schools open because I have to go to work in my family. We have a situation where so much of our lives revolve around when my niece is able to go to school or not. And we relish the days that she does get to go, even though we know it is dangerous. I am so resistant to individualistic shaming at this point. Parents, teachers, everyone got just the worst of this. They were given no options. They were given information that was just wrong from people they were supposed to be able to trust. And then they were just left alone as if like they were supposed to deal with the aftermath themselves. And there's a lot of things that I am ready to kind of take to task with the separation between parent and teacher decision making and policy and education decision making. But no parent asked for any of this. And there was just nothing good about it. I, I just want to have that said uh, in this thing because I feel the weight of it, even though I'm myself not a parent. There's, I, I got a lot of weight on my shoulders about it. Um, just anyway. So what can we do next time? Dan, let me tell you, man, it would be great if the internet was a public utility, Dan. <laughs> this is the broad, easy demand thinking that we come to expect from Radio Free Bay Ridge. Sudden pivot into a totally different policy discussion. Well, here's the deal. Education, of all the policies you can think of, education touches all of them. One of the things we get wrong in education policy is the fact that it's just curricular reform and paying teachers more. Holy crap. No, it's not. One of the reasons in April why the imaginary circular desk of decision makers was kind of looking at the fall and saying, no, we can't do remote, is because 10% of all New York City public school students are homeless. 10%? Yeah. Well, I mean, 70% of them are under the poverty line. So 10% uh, of those are homeless. So that all affects internet access. In New York City, we have this classic drug lord arrangement between Spectrum and Fios and Optimum kind of, where they all stay off each other's turf and everyone's got one option and none of it's broadband and none of it's public access. And by the way, Spectrum workers are still on strike. And all of this stuff has prevented a large number of public school students from having access to the internet. Like we could hand out iPads to every public school student. It would be hard. And as a matter of fact, I don't think they wanted to do that either, but we could have done it. But where are they getting the Wi-Fi? 
Where are they logging on? And that affects teachers as well. Like the number of times oh, like, sure teachers does. running a classroom with bad Wi-Fi. Okay. Let's just say that everyone should understand this. You're listening to a podcast. You're probably somewhat technologically savvy. You get it. <laughs> Internet is a public utility. Fix number one. We could have had that way earlier than this, and we would have been ready. And I want to say how, because a one that I still like and nobody has pushed me back on yet is, say we decide to close down public schools. New York City has a fleet of buses that they are just not going to be using. Mm -hmm. Guess who also was really struggling in the early days of that pandemic? Car rental services. Car rental services that had 12-person white passenger seater vans that were going to be empty. Put an internet tech in there and you put a Wi-Fi hotspot in there and you drive them throughout the city and you solve a lot of issues. The buses exist. The vans exist. Suddenly, every student has access to Wi-Fi. And obviously, I'm oversimplifying a public policy fact, but this is something that we have access to until we have fully accessible public broadband because if you want to hear a horror story, talk about teachers dropping off calls and then hosts going to other people. Reliable internet for everybody is step one. Now the issue that we talked about a little bit earlier, which is education being childcare. It's not. I want to repeat about five times. It's not. It's not. It's not. And it's also not. But for Cooney, there were about 2,800 layoffs in the yeah. first month or so of COVID. It's since ballooned. And a quick way to get them employed is to start setting up ways for them to take care of children during a pandemic while their parents go back to work. Yeah, you're describing a public citywide learning bridges initiative. Learning bridges were how a lot of private sector places like tutoring centers were set up socially distanced and chaperoned as learning environments for students to take their remote classes with Wi-Fi and lunch spaces and all of that. And kids can go. And again, if their parents needed to drop them off during the workday or critically didn't have an environment at home that was conducive to remote classes. We could easily allocate public space for that. Libraries, government buildings that were shut down, even private businesses like gyms. Who knows? It could be a way to help red zone businesses. We could even have shut down high schools since high school age kids aren't as big a burden to a working family in terms of childcare, and repurpose that space for elementary students who needed learning bridge spaces. Speaking of high schools, you know, if you think 3,000 laid off adjuncts from CUNY aren't enough to take care of all the children in New York, 11,000 high school seniors graduated during the pandemic and they're not going to college. So I think they're probably going to want to get a paycheck. I could think of a few things that they could do. And people have pointed this out and it's very valid. There are students who actually do just need to be taught in person. These are students with special needs or students with IEPs, individualized education programs. I don't mean that they're upset about remote learning. I mean, they shut down in remote learning or they actually need a teacher in front of them. The fact that we wanted to open schools up for everybody disadvantages those students. Schools could have been open just for them and everyone else is like, hey, they need it more than my kids need it. It can't be understated. It didn't make it into the public sphere. It just didn't. Because we decided we were going to open it for everybody. That would have been easily the first and best answer to how to deal with this. And I want to bring in now the epidemiologist I talked to Basically, I was like, hey, am I being gaslit online every day for saying school should have been closed and everybody yelling at me that they shouldn't? She said, no, the way to open schools would be to close everything else. That's how we could have opened schools. We're going to know so much more about COVID in five years than we know right now. Mm -hmm. But one of the things we do know right now is that if schools aren't going to be the spreader events, making sure teachers have PPE and making sure students are being tested, not at a 15% level, but 100% level, but your parents went to brunch, the kids are still going to get sick. So I think we have two scenarios and keep it to two scenarios. We're going to open schools up or we're going to close schools down. 
mm-hmm. and then figure out how we're going to do each of those and be ready to ramp them up, right? Yeah. If we're going to close schools down, what's our Wi-Fi situation? Assess it at the moment. How can we get it better? If we're going to keep schools open, have we put a nurse in every school yet? Have we put a therapist in every school yet? Mm-hmm. Do we have stockpiled PPE that they can use in an emergency and in a manufacturing crisis where we don't have any anymore? Yeah. That's the kind of long-term planning that needs to happen. And it needs to have so many decisions made before it hits so that we can stop all of this. I think we need to do this. The governor wants to do this. The teachers union is banging on this thing over here. And the chancellor's over here doing this dance. Most of the decisions need to be made so that they are out of everyone else's hands and people know what's going on. And that also means that we're going to need to demand a different way of how we fund schools. Schools can't just be tied to the economic well-being of the city. And unfortunately, that's a really difficult thing to really decouple. But we really need to start taking a really hard look at the basis of our economic system, because as long as it functions this way, hospitals had to bid over PPE. That was in limited supply. So like New York State would bid against Ohio or California for basic protections. And it went to the highest bidder. And when they didn't get it, Dan, they put doctors in trash bags. Yeah. That's something we cannot ever forget that happened. I know people hate hearing this, but there's no way we get out of this without giving schools more money. I really hate to break people's heart uh, and tell them that. But, you know, we could really start by giving them the money they're supposed to have already, which they currently don't have to the magnitude of multiple millions of dollars. So I hate to say that a solution is throwing money at a thing, but the solution here is throwing money at a thing. So what are some other things that we could have done better and prepped for this time around? We absolutely could have done a lot better on the political sphere of things. There were a lot of instances of politicians who didn't know what to do, so they defaulted to the loudest voice in the room. Mm -hmm. There was a distinct lack of political leadership when it came to schools, despite the fact that I know for a fact healthcare officials and education policy experts were in their ears and they just weren't listened to. And there is definitely a political infrastructure needed in terms of how to get people's attention. But everyone rolled over on this. And that was really unacceptable. Everyone was waiting for someone else to make the big decision. Local electeds didn't feel like they had the authority to make those calls. Justin Brandon can't write the Department of Education's budget. I'm sure (laughs) he would be stoked if he could. I think he'd do great things if he could, but he can't do it. On our end, I'm going to tell this to our listeners, and not because Dan needs to hear it. People like us, Dan, could do a hell of a lot better at putting the line in the sand and making just so clear what that line is. If we want X from a politician... We have to be so obvious what that is. I can't go to Justin and say, close the schools down. That's not a line that he can work with, right? (laughs) He can't just get on his Twitter account and say, close the schools. We have enough politicians who try to work that way anyway. We have enough right-wing trolls on his threads that think that that's how it works. It's not. Right. I've come to realize that at a certain point, parents need to just be parents and education policy people need to be education policy people and teachers need to be teachers. And we all do better by talking about the things that we know. No one knows a parent's kid better than the parent. Nobody knows education policy better than a policy researcher. And nobody knows their classroom like a teacher. And if we can work together on those things, we get a little less factional. So it needs to be incumbent on me, who knows education policy, who has sources in public health, to say, you have public health and you have education on your side. 
I'll be there for you behind you when you announce it. This is a tangible thing. Yeah, do it. But leadership lacked in this pandemic. And I don't think I'm being controversial in saying that at the local or national level. Think about how COVID got so messed up. We had a bunch of people who were eminently unqualified from the federal government managing a federal crisis. We had entire departments in our government wiped of career civil servants. And we had a ton of people who did not stay in their lane and complicated that narrative. That was from the federal side. That's from the state side. That was Cuomo and nursing homes. That was on the local level where local politicians weren't sure what lane they even had because a lot of local electeds wear so many hats. Is it up to Mark Traeger, who chairs the education committee, to make a statement? Yeah. And then parents were left with the bag of making that demand. And all of their demands kind of differed. And one of the reasons they differed is because people just lied to them. Yeah. I don't want to let this thing end without being told that parents, you were lied to in a lot of different ways. Politicians were lied to. And as a parent, you hear your kid's going to be irreparably harmed in their educational journey for the rest of their life. Yeah. How does that not scare you? Of course it does. But it's a lie. There are people that you can blame, and I'm sure many of us already blame people coming into this episode. This is a natural disaster playing out in slow motion. And the best thing we can do as people, as neighbors, is think about what happens next. Taking care of each other in the immediate aftermath and planning, planning for systemic change for the next time this happens. All the things we talked about and more, those are going to improve education whether a disaster happens or not. Yeah. So thank you for sitting through what might have been a hair-pulling episode. Because I think a lot of you guys really are um, pretty close to this issue. I know we all are. Mm -hmm. Everybody cares about kids. I feel like we always end education episodes saying, like, everybody cares about children and whether they do well and learn. So I hope that you can see a little bit of light at the end of this tunnel. Eric... Thanks so much for coming on. And so, listeners, until next time. Stay free, Bay Ridge. 